0: i'm aaron david miller and this is carnegie connects good morning good afternoon good evening wherever you are in the world i truly hope you're safe sound and of course healthy i'm aaron david miller senior fellow at the carnegie endowment and welcome to carnegie connects a set of virtual conversations, at least for now, on issues of critical importance to America and to the world. Today, I'm truly honored and and pleased to host two of my extraordinarily talented Carnegie colleagues in a discussion of the Biden Democracy Summit and the general state and fate of democracy uh, in the world. Let me introduce them, although I I will say this at least twice, twice during the course of this presentation. These short bios do nothing to capture the full range of their talents. They truly are stars. Um, Frances Brown is a senior fellow and co-director of Carnegie's Democracy, Conflict, and Governance program. Previously worked at the White House, USAID, and a non-governmental organization. She writes on conflict governance and U.S. foreign policy. Rachel Kleinfeld is a senior fellow in the in the same program, Democracy, Conflict, and Governance, where she focuses on issues of rule of law, security, and governance in post-conflict countries, fragile states and states in transition. So we have with us two experts um, who can comment both on the state and fate of democracy here at home, as well as... Um, democracy abroad. And the timing for this uh, Carnegie next couldn't be better. We're on the eve of the Biden administration's Summit for Democracy, a virtual gathering of, I believe, 110 countries uh, this year and next uh, in the so-called year of action, uh, in-person gathering. And the meeting is occurring, sadly, against the backdrop of what Freedom House calls a sort of global recession in democratic life worldwide now for the 15th straight year. And finally, it occurs against the backdrop of an acute challenge, uh, I suspect, um, I know, in challenges to America's democratic practices and uh, the future of a healthy democracy in, in the republic. Let's start with the summit. And Francis, I want to start with you. The idea of a gathering or the use of democracy in American foreign policy is not new. You had Wilson's saving the, making the world safe. You had FDR and Church of Atlantic Charter. Uh, you have the Community of Democracies in the year 2000. Bush administration toyed with their freedom agenda. Um, why this summit, uh, and why now?
1: Erin, I think there's a couple answers to that question on why the summit, why now? Um, one answer is, of course, we are at a critical moment for global democracy for all the reasons you've laid out. We are coming off of a or in the midst of a 15-year global democratic recession, which is troubling. Another answer is that President Biden has said that democracy will be a crucial part of his foreign policy. Uh, Secretary Blinken has also said democracy and human rights will be at the center of the State Department's work. The third answer, I would say, is that President Biden made this as a campaign promise. So... We are going to have a summit for democracy.
0: Um, you know, it's called, and and over the last year and a half, even during the campaign, I, I think that the uh, the Biden administration and and those who would come in toyed with the notion of making this a summit of democracies or a summit for democracy. And they chose, quite consciously, summit for democracy. Um, and if you look at the invitation list, a full 31 of the 110 countries invited, um, Freedom House ranks as only partly free. So what what's the logic of, it's aspirational, for sure, for democracy, meaning they're all not democracies. Um, what's the logic of, in, with 28% uh, of those countries invited, who are attending, uh, again, are partly free or non-democratic or liberal, weak, weak democracies. Um, what's the logic here? To move them from one category into another? Again, to you, Francis.
1: Yeah, I think there are a couple of approaches the administration could have taken here. They could have gone a much more small tent approach with fully consolidated democracies. That is not the approach they took. They opted for, as you say, a bigger tent approach, 110 invitees. Not all are fully consolidated democracies for sure. I think this is a defensible approach. I think either one uh, could have been credible. But I think the logic here is, if you want to have a summit that asks participants to make concrete commitments towards democratic reform, then you need to invite participants in order to ask them to make those commitments. And I think there's a, a lot of utility in that. Others have certainly parsed the particular invite list. And you've served in government, Aaron, so you know very well that There is no precise science on any summit invite list or any grouping. There are a lot of borderline calls. There's a lot of gray areas. And this will probably come as no news to many who are watching, but intra governmental um, conversations end up getting very heated. And there's a lot of considerations that we from the outside don't see. So this is where we've landed. And as you say, it's a mixed bag. The last thing I would say, Aaron. because many have been parsing the exact invite list based on Freedom House or varieties of democracy analyses, is that there's often a data lag in those analyses. So some recent democratic momentum in a place like Zambia may not be captured in previous uh, indices, and that may have also been a consideration when they were putting together the summit. So to me, the bigger question is not, is the invite list the exact right invite list? But instead, now that we've got the invite list, what are we going to do with it to push democracy globally?
0: Right. I think that's a criti- critical point. And by the way, the obverse is also true. Uh, countries that had shown democratic tendencies over the last year with, with respect to the lag time have have also showed tremendous in, in, imperfections. I noticed, for example, Tunisia is not on the list, which leaves only two Middle Eastern countries, Israel and Iraq. And I'm, I'm actually quite intrigued why, There was a need to add Iraq, given all of Iraq's imperfections. I suspect someone may well have decided not to leave the Israelis as the only democratic polity in the region and needed to include an Arab country. So I think you're right. There are a lot of considerations. Rachel, to you, is there a danger, though, at all? I mean, I I worry for a living, so forgive me. Is there a danger at all in legitimizing countries that are invited to this summit who are to use a term, um, dinos, "dinos," democracies in name only. Is there a danger of inviting countries like these who then return without making commitments that's left till next year or fulfilling commitments, but legit- legitimizing them?
2: You know, the, the problem with um, any summit is what's your theory of change? What, what are you trying to do in order to advance democracy? It's a hard question because... We're in a democratic recession. As Francis said, we've been in a democratic recession for 15 years. It seems to be speeding up. It seems to be um, increasing. And what we're seeing is uh, the democratic recession getting more bold. So what used to be democracies that were backsliding more frequently through elected leaders changing the rules. Now we're seeing out and out coups more frequently. And so so um, it, it's getting more bold, more difficult. What's our theory of change against this emboldened Autocratic kleptocratic world and um, and so on and um, one theory of change is let's gather the avengers, let's gather the you know core democracies that we can really count on and um, have a phalanx of those countries go out against the world and that's the small tent approach. The problem with that approach is that even the the core democracies, are a little wobbly on some of the other countries that you might want them to go up against because they have economic interests, because they get their oil and gas from another country that they have strategic interests from, what have you. Democracy is not the only value that countries have in their national interest basket. So uh, there's no problems with that theory of change. The theory of change behind this uh, summit is let's get these countries together, some of which are democracies that um, are more consolidated, all of which have things they can work on as with the UN sustainable development goals there's kind of this recognition now that the united states and other countries that are more consolidated need work just like the others let's all make commitments and then let's try to get those commitments followed through upon and that's a perfectly uh, valid theory of change the problem is as uh, democracies can change governments uh, legitimately and so if those governments change it, it's hard to get the next government to necessarily keep the promises of the government that just occurred. And so the follow through is going to be difficult.
0: Yeah, I, again, but in a case like India, for example, the Biden administration has been more or less silent on the degradation of democracy uh, in what had been, I mean, the world's two largest democracies, the United States and India showed a precipitous decline, again, according to Freedom House, um, I hope my friend Mike Bromowitz is listening, um, that's a problem, though, isn't it? I mean, Modi walks away. There's very little criticism. Um, he's revalidated in the Democratic club. So I, I guess that's a risk that has to be run when you bring hard cases to bear. And if you don't bring hard cases, if you don't address hard cases, let's leave the Russians and the Chinese out of this for a minute, then what's the real substantive value? So let me ask you, Rachel, this, the summit has three objectives nominally. I guess it's uh, defend against authoritarianism or authoritarians. It's uh, fight corruption. And it's, uh, I guess, promote human rights. Those, I think, are the three nominal goals that are both in the State Department and the White House announcements. And uh, uh, the how to on this is really a heavy lift. How do you go about making this happen? What And it's all about leverage to some extent. How do we? How do we extract, how do we push things forward? First, Rachel, to you and then to Francis.
2: So the U.S. has very little leverage over the domestic activities of other countries. The U.S. has very little leverage over the state activities of our own country. I mean, you point to Modi's India's backsliding. Look at our own country. We've passed eight anti-protest laws in our states in the last uh, year since the Black Lives Matter protests, two right to drive protest laws that say that if you drive into protesters, you can get off um, on very minor charges. Really uh, significant anti-democratic activities in the electoral field that we've seen and and so on. So it's not just Modi's India is what I'm saying. Even within our own country, we're having trouble uh, holding the, the ring. And how do we get another country to enact democracy? There's moral suasion, but really what there is is trying to convince them that there's a reason internally That they need to to be um, concerned about this. We don't have a lot of other leverage other than them deciding internally that they want to do this. And so, part of the goal of a summit uh, is going to be trying to up the ante for why these leaders need to be aware of the problems of democracy for them um, and trying to make that case to them themselves that this is in their own self interest, not just in the United States' interest. And so far as it's just in our interest, really, our leverage vis-a-vis the other forces, because this is an area in which there are other forces pushing in other directions. There are kleptocratic countries that are offering their own incentives in another direction, and there are autocratic countries offering incentives in another direction. We're, we're playing a game with more than one player here, and um, all we can really do is try to convince them that they want to do what we want them to do, and that it's in their self-interest.
0: I mean, Rachel, I applaud. I applaud uh, your realism because I think it's the basis on you know looking at the world the way it is. First and foremost, is a critical, critical sine qua non to have any hope of changing it. And the federal system in this country has been a a a blessing as well as a liability for the reasons that you point out. But we're going to talk plenty in a bit about a mirror about the quote-unquote glass house problem we have. Uh, in in promoting this summit. Uh, To you, Francis, on the question of the how to?
1: Yeah, I think as Rachel says, our leverage here is modest, um, but that doesn't mean we can't use the summit to advance some real progress. So I think the theory of the summit is essentially if it can kickstart momentum, if it can generate some energy towards addressing discrete democratic issues, then it will be a success. But, but but I think it's really important we are clear that is not getting at the entirety of the challenge of the global democratic recession and what the Biden administration has laid out as its mission to help renew uh, democracy globally. First of all, there are myriad countries who are not invited, as we've discussed. We need some kind of theory of the case of how we are pushing them along the democratic spectrum. Second of all, democracy doesn't just happen in summit commitments. Democracy or democratic backsliding is happening now in processes around the world. We've had a record-setting year for coups, as Rachel referenced. We have a number of really important political transitions that will be happening within the next year. We have leaders around the world trying to extend term limits and do other things to extend their power. So there's a lot of democratic action that this summit is not covering. It would be a shame and a mistake if the Biden administration is so focused on summit execution and then summit follow-up that it doesn't pay enough attention to those democratic issues as they unfold. So as the year of action, which is what will happen next, happens, what I'm looking for is two things. One is the actual follow-up on discrete summit commitments and accountability, uh, hoping that we can advance the theory of change that Rachel laid out. And two, what are we doing beyond summit follow-up? Because I think there's a whole host of really important Democratic issues that we need to be getting at.
0: One of my former bosses, James Baker, had this notion of leaving a dead cat on the doorstep of the recalcitrant party in an effort basically to the fear of having the cat laid on your doorstep basically meant that you, I mean, there was leverage there for the United States. If you don't do this, then this 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 may happen now this 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 didn't have to happen in Baker's case he was he was pretty successful but if you're not going to blame or shame countries and the glasshouse problem is a real problem here we're probably less credible now than at any time I can remember in terms of pushing our soft power given our own democratic dysfunction what about US aid? A long a long advanced and sought tricky, fraught instrument for you're asking a lot of country. questions
2: there and let me just try to parse a few of them here um so first the blame shame or dead cat these these are actually three different strategies i would say um you know there's there's just moral suasion saying you're bad uh that works less and less well in a world that's breaking down into multiple camps um but it still works in certain areas so for instance when the world bank was doing its doing business index countries did care about where they were on that because that wasn't solely about um moral feeling that had to do with their bottom line and gdp did matter and so the the moral suasion of where they stood on that played a role you can do similar things with corruption indices and so on there's a moral area to it but there's also a business and a gdp area so I think there's your, your blame and shame, Your right, is breaking down somewhat in a world in which um, there's other camps that would like you, you can you leave this party and you can go to that party. Um, but there's still a role to play. And countries still, you know, for whatever reason, um, which I find increasingly hard to understand, they do like to legitimate themselves through through elections. They do like to do these huge sham efforts, which take a lot of work. Um, it takes a lot of work to steal an election, actually, once you've gone through the effort of putting it out. So it does, th- there is a role for moral suasion. It is not completely useless, but I agree that it is not as useful. The dead cat um, scenario, and I prefer my favorite movie um, with the the horse head, um, but it's a similar, I think, idea. We're going to get uh, calls now. I know, I know. I, I was trying to, I was trying to clean it up, but the... Um, you know, that is a threat. That That is not moral suasion. A threat is a very different thing. And a threat is saying, um, we're giving you a warning shot over the bow that if you don't do this or don't do that, there will be repercussions. And that is saying we have leverage of X, Y, and Z format. We can have sanctions. We can have smart sanctions. We can take away carrots. We can give carrots. And we have a lot at our disposal in, in that Format. People still want military aid from the United States. Yes, they can go to Russia and China, but we still have the world's most advanced um, equipment and training and so on. We have USAID. We have famine aid, which Ethiopia wants right now. We, there's all sorts of different levers that we can pull diplomatically and so on. So uh, threats of repercussion or threats of loss of carrots uh, is, is a different thing than just pure moral suasion.
1: If I can add to that before we, I know you want to pivot to the glasshouse question, Aaron, and we are excited to go there with you. But very quickly on the, yes, the blame, shame, dead cat, um, Rachel's points on moral suasion. I would also add that in some cases, there can be an opportunity to argue for countries enlightened self-interest towards democracy. This is not always the case, but. You've been hearing a lot from the Biden administration recently about this idea that either democracy delivers or democracy must deliver. This idea that democracy is a better system to solve people's problems than authoritarian systems. They're making this argument, as I read it, in particular vis-a-vis citizens of of the world who are living under democracies. And they're saying, you know, citizens need to feel that democracies are working for them. But they're also making it vis-a-vis other heads of states of democratic places saying, this is this can be a better system to deliver results. So there are a number of tacks that can be taken on that front, I think, Aaron. And I I the last thing I would say is that of course not all arguments to other countries happen in public. So we may not know if it is a blame, a shame, a dead cat, or other approach being taken in totality. There's a lot, there's a lot of tools that happen under the radar screen.
0: If you had to identify one or two metrics. To judge whether or not the virtual piece of this is a quote a success, or is it just checking something off the whiteboard by December 31st, a campaign commitment? Or are there no howlers or embarrassments. One of these countries isn't forced to crack down <clears throat> in a major way uh, next Thursday or, or this Thursday or Friday, which embarrasses the administration. How would you define success? Or maybe it's not possible. Maybe you need the year of action.
1: I I think the way that this summit has been structured, its success or failure will be totally contingent on what happens during the year of action. And is there indeed action during said year? The things I will be looking for uh, this week include, are the commitments that are laid out by heads of government, are they clear? Are they robust? are they meaningful? So that will matter. But then really during the year of action, there will be a couple of questions. Are there clear ways in which civil society can monitor these commitments and feedback these commitments into actual accountability mechanisms? It is not enough to say civil society will be involved in monitoring, civil society go forth and do your good civil society work. That is not going to bring us accountability for these actions. There are parts of this that need to be inherently governmental. If the, if this is a presidential initiative from the U.S. president, um, it needs to be a U.S. government initiative as well to lay out how accountability will happen. So I think those are the metrics, and they will only unfold over this forthcoming year of action. So I am staying tuned.
0: Uh, smart and wise. It's a process. I, I know a lot about process. Process is another word to describe a problem you can't solve today, and that's basically the been the theme of American foreign policy for many, many years, but I think we need a, a an analog to the COP, to the conference of parties. There ought to be a conference of, of for democracy every year, because otherwise, you know, nothing in America lasts more than 15 minutes. And I've been a part of a, a, enough administrations to know uh, that a lot of things get proposed and then dropped or revisited. But there's very little follow through. So if we're really serious about this, the year of action is going to have to be followed by, how shall I say this, many years of action on this issue.
1: That is certainly true. And it's worth noting that the administration has said there will be a follow up summit round two, which I know all of the working level people in government are already looking forward to another year of summit planning. So they, they have laid out some mechanism for follow-up.
2: Yeah, although, although Aaron, to, to your point, Linda, Francis's um, uh, tone of voice uh, with regards to the uh, looking forward to the summit, you know, some of us didn't want a summit in the first place. Some of us who believed deeply that democracy was in peril internationally thought that a summit wasn't the right way to handle it. Um, it was a campaign promise, and, and Biden had to keep his campaign promise, but The problem with a summit and the problem with a COP um, and uh, the the COP and and, um, the problem with the follow-up is just the vast amount of time it sucks out of the administration um, and all the other administrations. Um, What we really need is a concerted strategic plan for how to get democracy back on track. That is almost the opposite of a summit, Um, a concerted strategic plan that you execute with allies and that you work with um, hybrid democracies to get better on and so on is uh very much not out in public necessarily it is very much uh quiet diplomacy it is discussions it is parts of it that are that are public that are meant to be public and parts of it that are not that are meant to be not and it is most of all um deeply thought through with an uh a focus on getting things done um and getting things done that need to get done in, in the very short time that this administration has left frankly. And the summit is going to take away from that. The follow-up summit is going to take away from that. And we're in a democratic recession that's increasingly swift. And so um, I would hope that the administration itself um, is starting to put more money into democracy and hopefully put more strategic thinking into democracy. And as well as doing the summit can do some walking and chewing gum, because this is not strategy. Um, in some ways, there's a sideshow to strategy.
1: I just have to emphasize that we cannot say it enough. A democracy summit is not a democracy strategy. Our colleague Tom Carruthers and I had a piece a few months ago saying just that, laying out several dilemmas the administration needs to work through. And the concern here is that the summit ends up being seen as an end in and of itself, whereas at best, it can be a means towards an end. So I think this is really crucial.
0: Thanks for listening to Carnegie Connects. This show would not be possible without the generous support of our donors. If you'd like to support us, visit ceip.org/donate. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to tune into the conversation live? Click the link in the description below. receive invitations to the next Carnegie Connects. Now, back to the show. The late John Lewis, I think, uh, once said that democracy is not a state. Democracy is an act. And I I think both of you have confirmed that. So uh, to transition, if Joe Biden were on the call um, uh, and he was prepared to be brutally honest, he would simply say to all of us, he would say, you know, there's no single foreign policy challenge out there, possible with the possible exception of climate or a combination of challenges, that is more dangerous and detrimental uh, to the future of this republic than what is happening here at home. Uh, again, with all due respect, you know, to Micah is in Freedom House, The United States continued to experience erosion in democratic practices in 2020. Over the past decade, America's score dropped from 94 to 83 out of 100 among the steepest falls of any country during this period. So to you, Rachel, um, mission, question, impossible. The state and fate of our democratic practice, our traditions, our conventions that with all their imperfections, have made this a rather extraordinary enterprise with all of its imperfections. Again, how bad is it here?
2: America has real problems. America's had real problems in the past and also done a lot for democracy. I mean, think about the Helsinki Accords, which were a a real high point for international democracy promotion and support. That was a moment in which, um, in the early 70s, we were still deeply repressing our uh, gay and lesbian population. Uh, Stonewall was just happening. We had just passed the Civil Rights Act, and we're still facing significant amount of violence and rioting from the Civil Rights Act. We actually had the most number of terrorist acts domestically in the early 70s when the Helsinki Act was um, passed. Uh, far surpassing the kind of political violence we're seeing now. And I'm, you know, I'm ringing the bell every day about political violence right now because it's skyrocketing, but it's skyrocketing from a point that's nothing like it was in the early 70s. So are we in peril now? Yes, we just passed a a slew of anti-protest laws. 19 states have passed um, laws that make it harder to vote. Four of those states have passed laws criminalizing election administrations. These are low paid people who just run the plumbing of elections. And now they might face criminal penalties or go to jail for just doing their jobs. And in Wisconsin, which is not one of the states that passed those laws, there's actually felony felony charges being contemplated, raised by a sheriff, no less, which uh, suggests the level of politicization that our law enforcement is facing. Two states have enacted laws that would allow states to override local uh, election. This is bad. Um, But what I'm saying with the Helsinki Accords is that we've been in bad places before, and we've still done a lot for democracy overseas. And that's because these things are very linked. When our democracy suffers, it's in part because other democracies are also suffering and we're all sort of suffering together. We can't just deal with one without dealing with the other because the fates of these democracies are linked. And frankly, the the ways in which international transnational anti-democratic action is happening is linked. And so we need to raise the we need to raise the tide at home very much, and we need to raise it abroad at the same time.
0: Yeah, I have a broader question as both of you on that relationship. But Rachel, you, you study political violence in America, the rise of white nationalist extremism. How serious are the links between groups here who espouse white nationalist extremist replacement theory and those movements elsewhere? We'll get to the issue of predatory authoritarians in a minute, in terms of their impact on our democratic function here. But what about the white nationalist movements? I mean, are there linkages that that CIA, CIA and FBI uh, need to pay attention to, or are paying attention to?
2: Oh, sure. Definitely. I mean, we have an uh... We have had problems with white nationalism since the beginning of our republic, and certainly over the last 150 years. This is a homegrown, deeply rooted phenomenon. I do not want to suggest in any way that this is a foreign-brought phenomenon. You know, white nationalism is is deeply American. Sadly, um, all that said, uh, we also have deep transnational ties that move in all directions. So our white nationalists now are um, seeing a lot of. Uh, connection with Putin. And Putin has been fueling white nationalism all over the globe, actually. He's been really supportive of this, uh, this set of beliefs, also of, of sort of male nationalism or, or maleness, for lack of a better word. Um, some of the incel violence and things that we're seeing, anti-women violence and anti-women belief sets are actually the deepest um, fuel for white national violence. They're very connected so the people who are committing violence based on race, when you actually look at what's um, fueling the aggression, it's often aggression against women. So these things are connected. And Rush is very deeply supportive of both those strains of thought, this kind of highly male, highly masculine in a, in a negative sort of toxic masculine way. And um, white nationalist beliefs that. And he's exporting it. He's exporting it actually in a way that is very similar to our democracy support, which is interesting and problematic in that. He does it through internal groups within countries. So he funds fight clubs. He funds mixed martial arts groups in in, uh, Eastern Europe, also in America, through a group called RIM. He funds biker groups, um, basically young men who want to fight if they're white. um, Putin is looking for and is looking to support. And we know that some of the... um, White nationalist web servers that are uh, deeply used by white nationalists were used on January 6th, Parler and Gab, the ones connected to what's known as Epic that had a big leak. And so we're now able to look at what some of those leaked files, uh, their back end was really full of holes. And those holes allowed trolling, they allowed bots, and they allowed a lot of information to be amplified um, through, uh, through campaigns, through propaganda. We don't know if that was foreign or domestic. We don't know if foreign actors were pushing it or domestic. But there is a linkage to uh, a Russian-owned company that also had the Ministry of Defense of Russia as a client. So people are looking into it,
0: yes. But you, you both agree, I suspect, that the balance of, the dis- the balance of responsibility for, our, for the current state of American democratic dysfunction lies within.
2: There's plenty of willing fools in America.
0: Well, no, but it's more, but right, but it's a systemic issue, which involves tribalism, polarization, g- grievance. I mean, the predators, the authoritarian predators, that ransomware attacks, disinformation, everything that you just alluded to with respect to Putin. That that is not where the the. Balance of responsibility lies for the current state of what's happening in our own politics. It accentuates it, it exacerbates it, but it's not driving it. Is that fair Is that a fair statement?
2: That's right. I, I, I mean, my, my feeling is that there are plenty of groups here that are very happy to drive this agenda. They're being assisted by propaganda, by divisiveness, by misinformation that may or may not be coming from foreign actors, but they're they're here. You know, We're seeing that in many other countries where Putin is funding um, very extreme political parties, say in, in Germany, the AFD or what have you. Um, it adds to trouble in democracies. He's basically just creating trouble, but he's creating trouble out of feelings that are already there. And it's not just Putin, I'm picking on Putin because of the white nationalist ties.
1: I would just add to that, when we think about the, the global democratic recession that we've mentioned a couple of times, yeah, it absolutely is this confluence of factors. There's a lot of challenges from within, the sociopolitical challenges, deep inequality, the sense, again, from citizens that their country, their democracy is not actually solving their problems. So those are the internal factors. Then often we also see some external factors of authoritarians who are happy to take advantage of that. And then finally, some leaders in in some countries are very happy to uh, sort of attack the institutions of democracy while still pledging uh, officially commitment to democracy. So there's a lot, there's a big confluence of factors that we've seen over the last 15 years. And then I would just add, the, the COVID pandemic has really added to a lot of those challenges to democracy because we have seen pretext for authoritarians to expand their executive power. We've seen pretexts to cut down on, clamp down on civil society, on independent media. Obviously, we we've seen huge economic challenges. So it's kind of been a perfect storm in the last 18 months of all these factors piling on top of one another globally.
0: Right. I I, I don't want to lead you to a, a conclusion, but having worked for Republicans and Democrats and voted for Republicans and Democrats, I'm I'm wondering, the influence of extremist groups notwithstanding, there seems to be. A, a major issue of mainstreaming, rhetoric, uh, division, tribe tribalism, particularly with respect to one one part of the political spectrum as opposed to the other. If you want to identify a single issue that is driving uh, our own unique democratic recession, could you do? Could you could you identify a single factor? How important is mainstreaming? You have elected officials, large numbers of them, largely on the Republican side, who are willing to acquiesce, validate, and in some cases, espouse things that we never would have heard a decade ago from mainstream American politicians. How vital a factor is that?
2: It's hugely important. It's also not something I'm surprised to see. When you see democracies failing anywhere in the world, you see legislators um, being the least willing to stand up for the institutions, um, the the least brave. Um, it, it's disturbing, but not surprising. I think in America, you know, we're a funny democracy. We're the oldest democracy in the world. And yet we had an anti-system party for hundred years that was democratic. In the South, that was a one party uh, used force to keep you know used citizen force and used its own uh, state force to keep a one party rule in the South after reconstruction for a hundred years, and we just went on blithely pretending that we were a fully consolidated democracy with one party rule in a whole series of states. Now, I fear we're facing something that is looking disturbingly similar in the Republican side, which is that. A Republican Party is moving toward an anti-system party, is moving toward a party in which a lot of um, leaders do not seem to be supporting kind of basic Democratic tenets because they don't think they can win with a full Democratic polity, just like Democrats in the South used to not think they could win if African Americans had the vote. And first of all, I think they're wrong. But I also think that it's really uh, extremely problematic when you have an anti-system party. It's especially problematic in a two-party system. Multi-party systems have anti-system parties and you can vote for someone else. But in two-party systems, if you're a conservative and you don't like the cultural mores of the left and the cultural mores of the left, as the right is becoming more extreme, the cultural mores of the left are also moving not nearly as extreme. But to a point where, you know, if you're an evangelical Christian who believes certain things, you're not comfortable with some of what is coming out. Well, who are you going to vote for? an anti-system party or this party that doesn't hold any of your beliefs. There's no one else, which is why people like me are pressing for uh, ranked choice voting and ending party primaries and all sorts of things to just give more flavors because we need this dual party system when one party moves toward an anti-democratic party it leaves nowhere for all the conservatives who are ne- not necessarily anti-democratic, small, you know, they don't they aren't anti-system, but they're anti the democratic party. They need someone to vote for.
0: I guess First question, the president's rhetoric has been consistent, but very um, aspirational. Control of the 21st century, as if any single country is going to control the 21st century, is basically a battle between authoritarians and democracies. And it's our job to prove that democracies work. The implicit message, of course, is that authority societies don't, or they don't work as well. Um, is there a danger in this? I mean, Biden has gone out of his way to, to say he doesn't want a new Cold War, but is there a danger in dividing the world into Democrats uh, just for, and dictators, even though there's complexity in both? Is there a danger at all? Is, it a, is that a Is that an effective organizing principle for American foreign policy?
1: My read of what I've been hearing is indeed we've heard this message of this contest of systems, democracies versus authoritarian systems. But then we've also heard pretty loud and clear from the administration, in my view, that there are many transnational challenges that we have to cooperate on. So climate change is number one; it is existential for us. Uh, pandemic disease is also very timely. So. As far as the messages coming out, I do do think I'm hearing a bit of nuance, and I think that's appropriate. Um, The most critical challenges facing us, we cannot face exclusively as a club of democracies. And I think there's awareness of that. Um, Execution can be a different question. And there are are fair questions to be asked, you know, if we are sort of putting forward this idea of a club of democracies, does that undermine other initiatives? But I do think any administration, and you know this well, Erin, has to be able to push forward multiple imperatives at the same time. And I, from what I see, they're doing that.
0: Um, John McCain, I, I had this discussion with him, um, he used to say that our values are our interests and our interests are our values. Um, I would like to believe that that is true in, the, in terms of the implementation and practice of American foreign policy, but I, I will tell both of you, I cannot remember a single instance in 25 years of working for Republican and Democratic administrations, where in effect our values, human rights, support for democracy, responsibility to protect, took precedence over choices that were made to further our quote unquote interests, largely with authoritarian or liberal democratic partners authoritarian or liberal democratic partners. I mean, we talk a really good game, but we've been very short on execution implementation. I mean, do you see it that way or and it, do you see it changing?
1: My view from the time that I spent in the policy arena, Aaron, is that it's never the case there's one choice A, which is the pro-values choice, and choice B, which is the pro interests choice. For one thing, our interests are often in countervailing directions. Oftentimes, our security interests go counter to our economic interests on a particular question. So it is never that simple. You know that very well. And U.S. policy is a mix of public and uh, less public tools and messages that maybe a mix of all of those. So I don't I don't quite buy into the interests versus values paradigm anyhow. I will say however that this is a ripe moment to rethink a lot of the assumptions we've had on what we think are US interests. So I'll give you one example which is counterterrorism. Counterterrorism has driven a lot of US foreign policy and has often subjugated democratic concerns vis-a-vis particular countries. So think of Uganda, very important security partner Very underwhelming democratic record uh, or troubling democratic record in recent years. I think we have an opportunity to rethink how we get that balance right vis a vis Uganda. I think the same could be said for the changing energy mix and how we view many Middle Eastern countries. Um, No longer do we need to be dependent on foreign oil as much. Can we rethink how much we need those interests? So I think it's ripe for a recalibration.
0: I'd like to conclude with a, a line from Shakespeare, Henry IV. It's a line Jack Kennedy loved, but any realist would. Um, one character says to the other, I can summon the spirits from the vasty deep. And the other responds, but so could any man. The question is, do they come when you call? And that in, in essence is uh, uh, an issue of American leadership. Uh, I still believe that we can lead even on this issue. The question is, uh, when we call, will they come? I want to thank uh, both of you. Uh, I've had a lot of fun. I thought I think this was a great session. Um, you know your stuff, and you you love talking about it. Passion and expertise—it's an unbeatable combination. Uh, and to all of those uh, uh, listeners, Carnegie Connects. This will probably be the last session before the end of the year, unless there is some major catastrophe between now and January. I hope there won't be. Uh, we have an exciting program set up for the new year, so please continue to tune in. And I think uh, everyone have a happy, healthy holiday season and new year. Thanks again, Rachel, and thanks again, Francis.
1: Thank you, Aaron. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.
0: Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Carnegie Connects, a production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Views expressed are those of the host and guest panelists, and not necessarily those of the Carnegie Endowment, which takes no institutional positions on public policy issues. Subscribe to Carnegie Connects on popular platforms, such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast platform. Like what you heard today? Learn more at CarnegieEndowment.org slash Carnegie Connects. Tim Martin is our audio engineer, and Catherine Buchanan and Cliff jai are our executive producers. I'm Aaron David Miller, and until next time, think positive and test negative.